the Healthcare Science Show. Hello, this is Chris and this is the Healthcare Science Show podcast, stories of people that work in science, technology and engineering in the healthcare system. The first episode of the podcast, turns out, was listened to by 70 people. So thank you for tuning in and I'm pretty sure only one of those 70 people was my own mother. So we're back here with a second episode. What's been going on? Well, we're in May 2023. I've been spending a lot of time at work collating data from a clinical trial to reconstruct 3D images from a medical scan and send it off to a clinical trials team in the United States. The problem that I had is that the software, I don't know how to use it very well. So it took me a good few hours to get my head around it and create the images that are needed. If only I had access to a network of experts who knew how to use that software. Could have saved myself a lot of time. This leads me on to talk about the interviewee for this episode, who is Keely Thwaites, an immunohistochemist and genomics scientist at Barking, Redbridge and Havering University Hospitals. Keely explained to me all about immunohistochemistry and her project to start up a network of experts in that area who could help each other out with the kind of problems that I had and in many other ways, which you'll hear her talk about later in the episode. But before we hear about the network, we enter the world of the very, very small, uh, the cell, the human cell. And Keely talks in detail about some of the things that are going on under the microscope slide. So as we go through the episode, keep in mind that we're talking about things that are just microscopic that you can't see, Um, and particularly things like proteins, which help make up the structures of cells, and antibodies, which are part of the immune system and a way of identifying different types of proteins. So prepare to enter the microverse, and let's get started with the episode. We met each other originally in an action learning set. Do you remember? Do you remember that? I do. <laughs> I liked action learning. So for people that might be listening who don't know what action learning is, it's the way you meet with a group of people who have workplace challenges mm-hmm. and you can share in 30 minutes, you know, I'm having this difficulty at work. I need to convince people to get on board with a particular project or something, you know, what people would bring would always be quite different. Um, and then, the trick was to ask people coaching questions. You didn't give them a, a advice where you didn't say, well, if I were you, I would do this. Yeah. It, it was more, who else can help you is, yeah. a, is a good example yeah. of the question. Um, so Keely and I, yes, we were in the same action learning set with about four or five other people, right? Yeah. And we keep in touch with most of them, actually, don't we? Yeah. We found what, even though we're from different disciplines, different backgrounds, different hospitals, is that our challenges overlapped in so many ways. That was really good because even though it just felt like when I first met you, I was like, oh, how can I have anything in common with Chris on my action learning set? Yeah. But actually, we do because we work in healthcare. We've got the same challenges on the same path. So the feeling is mutual, Keely. I understand that immunohistochemistry, which is part of your job, it's fair to say that I have not very much idea what that means. In fact, the words sort of scare me slightly. We're probably going to need to deconstruct that a little bit and try and figure out what it is for the people that are listening. But when I met you in the action learning set, I had no idea. Um, you know, what does Keeley do? Immunohistochemistry, what's that? I don't know. 
we were whispering to each other. Yeah, it's really exciting. And everyone was in awe, weren't they? <laughs> yeah. Well, so I guess probably the first question to ask about is, uh, you know, why, if I was going to the hospital for a mm-hmm. test or for some reason, why would I as a patient have any interaction with immunohistochemistry? As a patient, you probably wouldn't be aware that you'd had this test in the laboratory. I'd have to kind of take two steps back and talk a little bit about histopathology. If a patient has any surgery, so that could be a a large resection surgery. So for for example, a patient that's got breast cancer may have her breast taken away Mm. um, or even a small biopsy. You may have a skin tag removed or you may have something that's a, a suspicious melanoma all of these tissue bits, if you like, are sent to histopathology. And then we go through a series of technical steps as scientists to process that tissue. And the role of the histopath lab is to provide essentially a diagnosis. The surgeon or the doctor that's taking care of them will be like, tell me what's going on with this tissue. So when the tissue leaves anybody, if you can imagine what a piece of meat might do if you leave it out on the sides, if you don't put your steak in the fridge, for analogy, but it will de- decompose. So we yeah. use uh, formaldehyde or form- formalin that all of our specimens go into. The process of fixation is quite detrimental to downstream testing. Fixation compromises the quality of that material we get out that end. Hmm. Once those samples come up to the laboratory, everything about that sample is checked. Most importantly, all of the patient identification. Hmm. The wrong person's tissue being assigned to the wrong results. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. so that happens in what we call specimen reception. Once it's received, you're happy that it's the right person. Tell me what's next. A scientist or a pathologist would give a description of what's been received. And we do something called specimen dissection. And I don't work in dissection, so I don't want to give this area an injustice. But mm. if, if we've got a tumour, for example, and measuring the tumour, looking at the resection margins, when there's samples taken from the body, have you cleared the whole of the tumour out or is there potentially some tumour left in? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it goes beyond that. And I'm not, I'm yeah. not doing it any favours. It's a, it's a massive, really important role. But- Just as an aside, did you ever dissect anything in school science lessons? in biology do you remember we did in my a level biology we did a sheep's heart a heart wow horrific yeah do you you remember thinking at the time well this is you know i definitely want to get involved in tissue specimens no because do you know what i actually don't like physiology that's why i've migrated to the molecular thing i really like what's happening you know in, in the small what's happening in those little tiny proteins those amino acids or that dna how how is something so small so absolutely magical and amazing this is the invisible stuff that you couldn't dissect because you wouldn't be able to see <laughs> yeah. it physiology i've got absolutely no interest in and it's probably because i'm not very good at it <laughs> and then once they've done that step then how is it at this point so we then dehydrate that tissue so we take all the water away from the tissue and replace that with paraffin wax and we have the wax block yeah from there you use something called a microtome to cut really thin sections of that specimen and they're transparent the microtome sounds like uh you know when you see some type of meat being sliced it's exactly that yeah yeah. those sections are floated out on a water bath picked up on a glass slide that glass slide you then do something called baking so you want to stick the tissue so the wax melts the tissue section onto the glass slide which we then stain uh, using different dyes, so hematoxylin to stain the nuclei and a dye called eosin 
which sustains other tissue structures. And under the microscope, you have these beautiful pink and blue or purple. And then those tissue sections are examined by a histopathologist. And that preparation, in theory, that glass slide is is there forever. So there are instances where just the H&E slide isn't enough to provide a diagnosis. As we go on to immunohistochemistry, essentially we're using those same tissue blocks to try and identify those proteins. Protein, I'm, I'm thinking of like powder that muscle builders use. For, <laughs> so not that kind of protein, I guess. No, in your cells, you have got lots and lots and lots and lots of different proteins. And there's a whole group of proteins called cytokeratins and in epithelial cells these are cells that are found in organs and they're different types in different organs we know what cytokeratins that these cells express so the breast expresses cytokeratin 7 as does the lung when you say um express what what are they expressing is it like a little hook or something on the cell or (laughs) so that's my very simplistic view of things (laughs) so um, these cytokeratins are structural proteins that help hold cells' integrity together, essentially. And so when I say express, I mean they're there. Yeah. <laughs> they're produced yeah. by that cell type. I see. So, so if you had a, a liver tumour removed, then you'd expect the liver cells to have a certain protein, number seven. Exactly. Let's go with number seven. That seems like a popular <laughs> exactly. one. Exactly. We know the profile so we yeah. can use antibodies to look at what the different types of proteins are within that cell or on the cell surface or in the nuclei of that cell to try and get an idea of where the where this tumour may have come from. Yeah, some people will know about antibodies, I guess, from having their COVID vaccine or not, as the case may be. <laughs> yes. I uh, remember reading quite a lot about vaccines and how they would help your body create antibodies that would attach to proteins on the viruses to kind of tag it for destruction by your immune system. In the case of immunohistochemistry, it kind of sounds like you can use antibodies uh, and they will attach to other types of proteins that you find in human cells. Is that kind of right? Yeah, exactly. If we know the human protein that we want to look at and identify in the tissue blocks, we can buy partner antibodies that are manufactured by companies. Uh, Presumably an antibody binding to a protein on a human cell is invisible, even with a microscope. How do you go about actually seeing, seeing what's going on? Essentially, we tag the antibody with with a chromogen. The, the chromogen, sorry to interrupt again, the, the chromogen is like a, a chemical that has a particular colour or something? We use a chromogen that's colourless, but then when uh, oxidised, turns brown. Mm-hmm. So where that protein is on your glass slide, you'll have a brown deposit. We then use something called a counterstain to stain the nuclei. So if... There was none of the protein of your interest on your slide. The nuclei will just be blue. If your protein is there, then you'll have some brown staining plus some blue staining in the cells. Some samples that have got lots of melanin in, so lots of pigment um, that may be brown, you may not be able to differentiate a true immunohistochemical reaction. So we can use a different magenta 
coloured chromogen. I've seen some pictures of these. Some of them look like glow-in-the-dark artwork or something. Yeah, so if you're using a fluorescence dye, which you need a fluorescence microscope to visualise, yeah, it's absolutely beautiful under the microscope when it's stunning and you know there's always this like ooh and ah oh, when you've got some beautiful <laughs> sections um, call people over and say hey look at this one that i've got yeah and we share you know images of, of of things that look wonderful when you're talking about the clinical conditions it sounded like some of them were cancer related is that what's the role in cancer the role of immunohistochemistry in cancer is to try and help the clinicians identify a primary tumour when we don't know where it is. For example, a patient may go to their GP with a lymph node in their armpit or their groin or their neck. Uh, That's some sort of lump or some sort of swelling, some sort of symptom that could indicate cancer. Obviously, cancer might not be the most obvious choice at that point, but um, patient may then go on to have ultrasound and then maybe biopsied. And if that biopsy comes up to the laboratory, we do the traditional histopathology the hematoxin and eosin staining. And if under the microscope cancer is suspected, because it's a cancer that's gone to a lymph node, it may not be obvious where the primary tumour is. Right, yeah. So maybe a cancer started in, in the liver, for example, but doctors perhaps couldn't see it on a medical scan or other types of medical testing. Um, but, but it's possible for those liver cancer cells to leave that liver and when they're moving around the body, they typically travel through the lymph nodes. Yeah, so we use immunohistochemistry to look at the protein expression of those aberrant cells that have found their way to the lymph nodes. How, how long does it take? When you stain it, do you have to wait a while before it reveals its secrets or, or is it fairly immediate? When I first started working about 20 years ago, we did all of the staining by hand, but now it's, fu- it's fully automated because you, you just couldn't do that kind of workload. And also for consistency, you'd find some variation when people do it by hand. I'd, three hours is a bit of a push but you know half a day so we aimed our turnaround time from requesting for 24 hours There's all that time as well that if the patient may or may not have a particular kind of cancer they, they're obviously i want to know you know what's what's going on with me yeah um, so we have lots of emails from oncology asking for results mm. um naturally and often not just oncologists but the the wonderful cns nurses that are that are you know literally they're the point of call for these patients so there is a massive challenge for us to turn around our results as soon as possible so i've kind of said one of the reasons why we use immunohistochemistry the other i guess other most important that springs to mind i should tell you about is we use immunohistochemistry to help inform clinicians as to whether or not patients may or may not respond to different types of targeted therapies So now over the past years, I've had an explosion of what we call biomarker testing. Mm -hmm. For example, HER2, which is epidermal growth factor receptor 2, about 15% or so of breast cancer patients may have overexpression of this protein on their surface. So this is what we call the driver of this patient's cancer. But there's a whole host of HER2 therapies targeted for this type of cancer driver that patients are eligible for. So what we do in immunohistochemistry is to look at that protein expression on the cell surface and then are able to say to clinicians, this patient has overexpression, so you may want to consider her two targeted therapy or has no expression. So actually, don't waste your time with her two targeted therapy because it may not work. Um, mm. Ultimately, it's the clinician's decision with the patient. It's their discussion and they will take in 
all of the different aspects before they treat their patient. All we can do is say this is what's happening to this patient on a molecular level. Um, they won't get the the benefits if they don't have it, but also there's no point in using resources and time of people, so money and doctor's time to, to do treatments um, that aren't going to be effective. And, and the patients as well, I guess, don't want to go through an experience of having a treatment that isn't going to work for them because there may be side effects as exactly. well. Some of these drugs can have nasty side effects. And so, you know, to the point there where we have clinics set up to deal with the side effects of some of these targeted therapies. Yeah, so there's a massive responsibility for us in histopathology. One is we need to get that test right and it has to be right first time. Mm. Obviously, it goes without saying. But also we have this responsibility to use the tissue wisely we don't have an infinite amount of a of a, of a biopsy sample. So, well, yes. by definition, you can never really have more than an entire human's worth of tissue. <laughs> yes, exactly. And you know, patient having a biopsy it's not a nice procedure. They don't want to be there any longer, and you know, it's it's mm. uncomfortable, you know, to say the least. So, the samples that arrive in histopathology can be tiny, and mm. we're asked to do lots of tests on these tiny biopsy samples yeah i guess it could be quite easy to run out and you don't really want to have to go and ask for more um are there any other day-to-day issues that spring to mind some of the biggest challenges i have with regards to requests sometimes i will get a request for it sounds quite generic and actually it it, it could mean anything Mm. and sometimes i'm hunting to find out the requester so Mm. well actually what test did you mean what drug do you want to use because that might dictate what test we use such a complex testing landscape, if you like, that patients are only eligible for a certain type of or the drug type, depending on the test that they've had done. And um, so sometimes people say, okay, oh, do a PDO one test. Or well, mm. what PDO one do you want? Then like, I don't know, PDO one. I'm like, well, what therapy do you need to use? Oh, you know, what cancer type is it? What therapy do you need to use? Um, so that can be challenging. But that's, I suppose, that flows nicely into my role as a trainee consultant clinical scientist you know because of the emergence of of predictive and biomarker testing kind of now is my role is to keep up to date on what therapies have been approved and Mm. uh what that means for the testing in my laboratory Um, that knowledge is really important the guidelines and the science of what tests need to be done and which biomarkers are important in particular types of treatment is changing quite rapidly by the sound of it. Yeah, absolutely. And having good relationship with oncology helps because, you know, they can give us the heads up or they'll say, we know that this drug, it may be available on early access. is about to be licensed. So can we look at maybe getting this test? How can our patients have access to this? I think it's really important to, to mention the 100,000 Genome Project was launched with a view of sequencing 100,000 genomes. And that gave us lots of information about rare diseases and and cancers and and that research enabled us to look at what we can target but also about integrating molecular testing genomics england and nhs england launched the genomic medicine service and with that in 2020 something called the national test directory and that meant that if you were a lung cancer patient in blackpool or in bristol or in london who fit into the eligibility criteria of certain cancer type or rare disease type, you should still have access to those genomic tests 
which may then tell you whether or not you've got something that you can target therapeutically. So so that actually um, covers, so part of my role is, is the chemistry side and then part of it is the genomic side. So hmm. although they are separate, they are also integrated because they, they go hand in hand. Yeah. yeah, there's a link between what genes and genetics people have and what the proteins are, are expressed in, in the staining that you do for the immunohistochemistry. One of the other questions I wanted to ask is whether you wore a white lab coat in your day-to-day um, work. So when I'm in the laboratory, yes, <laughs> do wear a white lab coat, although mine is getting tighter and tighter <laughs> the older <laughs> I get. <laughs> it's like, That's oh, a sign of whether you're a veteran a lab scientist <laughs> or not, right? Yeah, um, but yes, lab coat is essential we could talk about the the network you're the founder of an immunohistochemistry network um so when what happened with that when did that start it makes me sound a bit more important than i think than, than i am back in 2019 I started the Chief Scientific Officer Women in Science and Engineering Leadership course, which was such a privilege to be accepted on to. Um, I consider myself really lucky to be shortlisted. It was such a great, empowering programme where we learned lots of leadership skills and lots of networking, which was really useful. Part of that programme was to start a project. My project was to start a network of scientists, of people that worked in immunohistochemistry laboratories because what I found was that I could work in silo. Sometimes I was on my own. I, I had people, you know, that I worked with within my own department, but as my role was evolving and changing so rapidly, I was keep trying to keep up to date with information really fast. And sometimes I wanted to know what other people were doing. Was I doing the right thing? You know, am I doing the right thing by our patients? The new biomarker tests that have been appearing so much in the last few years and how your your own role evolved, I guess. Exactly. You know, don't get me wrong, we get training by, you know, a company or whoever. If we did introduce something, it's not just like, oh, yeah, we'll start this test now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's massive work of verification and validation that goes into introducing a new test. But sometimes, you know, even if you're having an issue with a certain test, sometimes... Obviously, the first thing you might do is call a manufacturer if you're using something specific, but it's just troubleshooting and knowing that there are other people out there that may be going through the same thing. Something that happens a lot, I find, in the NHS is duplicating information. Mm. And it was, could we share best practice? Could we share things that people were doing well? Could we celebrate things that people are doing well? Could we help people where things are not going quite as planned what support can we give each other as, as a network and mm. so um initially i did some groundwork i presented at various user group meetings for different pieces of equipment that we use and and i kind of put the feelers out and everyone's like yeah that would be a good idea yeah yeah let's do that and so i, I got a list of about 20 names and uh, i was so apprehensive about sending this email because mm. the fear of rejection that people are going to go oh no actually please don't <laughs> I don't yeah. want to hear from anybody. Please don't spam me with your. With Who's your this emails. sending me another email? Yeah, exactly. Oh, I, don't have time. I don't need this. Yeah, in my life. Oh. Um, and uh, I nearly didn't send it, but I spoke to 
a previous wise woman, a fantastic friend of mine now called Siobhan Taylor. And we had this hour long conversation. And she's like, what have you got to lose? You know, just, just, just do it. You know, there is, it's a need. And the next day I sent this email out to these 20 people and uh, really quickly I was getting responses left, right and centre and I couldn't keep up. And I'm like, wow, this is fantastic. Mm. And I had, really quickly this list grew. And then I thought, okay, what are these social media platforms I could use? So put some bits out on LinkedIn and, and Twitter. And then I had a message on LinkedIn from a commercial partner. And he was like, commercial people allowed to get involved in this network and I said no not a chance mate (laughs) no way this is a safe space for scientists and he was like well no you know maybe a partnership would work we do work together and I thought okay maybe my colleague at work Rob I said Rob you couldn't help me build a website could you and he's like absolutely yeah because he loves him and his chemistry too so together we we built this I would say basic initially website and then we worked out how to get a forum and put some content on there beautiful images it was almost a social aspect as well that we all love talking about in his chemistry even if he's ranting about something that has or hasn't worked you can say to somebody actually i've got that antibody my protocol isn't working what are you using on your machine Um, Um, a lot of knowledge sharing going on yeah exactly obviously you know there's quite a lot of caveats to the knowledge sharing on the website so you wouldn't ever take mm. the knowledge without researching it up to you <laughs> beforehand, yeah. making sure that um, there's some substance behind, you know, scientific fact behind uh, behind people's knowledge. I suppose, I suppose there's um, there's space for very formal kind of sharing of information, like clinical guidelines that say this is the best way exactly. to do a particular test. But then when you get down to the day to day and your machine's broken or giving you some sort of weird error code that. <laughs> You're like, what does this mean? And you need that level of informal, oh, I need just to WhatsApp somebody and figure out, is this, am I going exactly. the right route? Or? And it's about having that kind of really quick communication stream. The mailing list in particular is is a lot like a consultant pathologist has asked for this test. We don't do it in-house. Can someone help me? Where can I get this done? And then you get kind of a flood mm. of replies saying, yeah, we do this, we credited, send your test to us. So it's really, really useful because before we'd be researching like what laboratory can I find that we can get this test done. Mm. That really helps, I guess, with things like equity of care. So if you're working in a hospital that's quite rural or remote that doesn't have as much facilities, it means that those patients in that area can get access faster to the tests they yeah, need. Yeah, I'd like to think so, <laughs> yeah. So it was kind of getting bigger and I couldn't cope with it on my own. So I asked, I kind of called out for volunteers. So... um so there are five of us now that, that run the network. So um, Jamie Hughes, he's um, worked at UK NEQAS, runs the you know, service, massive amount of experience. And Laura Pitter, who is also a wise woman, so she, we were both on the same cohort. She runs the immuno service. My colleague Rob, who built the website, he's our IT go-to. And Colin, he works in a commercial setting, but he's really good insight into kind of that relationship that laboratories have with with the commercial side so far we've hosted uh, five webinars with attendance between 80 and 120 people all the webinars are free and um, we record those webinars with the with the consent of the presenters and then we upload those onto the website how do you um, how do you decide what topics to cover so we do put feelers out 
and ask people what they want to, to hear. We've covered immunohistochemistry and digital pathology because, you know, we're on the realm of artificial intelligence, doing some of that interpretation <laughs> of those slides. We did a webinar on um, lung cancer and immunohistochemistry. We've done a webinar on mismatch repair testing, so trying to identify patients with Lynch syndrome in colorectal cancer and endometrial cancer. And most recently, we've done a webinar on HER2 breast cancer testing. But HER2 in particular, um, new new interpretation guidelines came out in December, and there's some slight differences to the to the previous UK guidelines. I want to say it's the talk of the of the immuno world at the minute. I think that was really yeah. important to make There's a buzz it's on the streets. Exactly, yeah, exactly that. Do, yeah. do you remember being in any other networks before before you started up with this one? I met a wonderful scientist working in radiation protection called mm. Jody and Jody's project was to launch the healthcare science network in our trust. Or I should say relaunch it because we kind of had one but it, it wasn't very you know vibrant but very active. I got involved as much as I could. We had this whole week of kind of activities and this is really embarrassing but we did this so um, wise woman talk to the four of us and the chief exec for the trust was there, ops managers, you know directors. It was a massive thing. It was really good because one of the the director of clinical and cancer support was so so keen on on making sure that there is a healthcare science network within our trust um everyone was there and i gave this talk and i got so emotional about it that i cried in front of everyone giving this presentation (laughs) about how proud i was of of my career and working within the trust i was so embarrassed but I was such an emotional-led person. I cried in front of like, the chief exec and everyone started clapping and I'm like, yeah, brilliant. Like, oh God, how embarrassing. But I think it just shows how much I care about the job that I do, the people that I work with and the patients that we serve. But, you know, the, the problem, if you like, or the challenge is that we we all work full-time. We've got families and we're trying run the network in our own time but I absolutely love it I love talking about him and his chemistry I like knowing how we can get better I like knowing what can I do to improve my service what can I do to improve the life of my patients and um, what can I do to improve that in other hospitals I think there might be a perception of networking in a kind of corporate way of it being a bit sort of sycophantic or tedious where you go around with a, a yes, canapes and a glass of yeah. wine and you're sort of only talking to the people that can, you know, they can help you out in your career yeah. or, but I suppose there's a lot about it as a give and take. Absolutely. So. Supporting each other. And one thing that came out of the healthcare science network was my accessibility to a mentor. So I've got a, a, a fab mentor who, who's a healthcare scientist, but works in cardiology. Um, she's got a, a wealth of experience. She's, you know, in a senior position, and um and, and and meeting her and her agreeing to be my mentor has been amazing going back to the immunohistochemistry network do you think you needed to do anything to help develop the culture of that so people felt safe or they could trust it as a space to they always use the word safe space um, and i get laughed at quite a lot because i do use that all the time what i wanted to be able to do was have a forum where people didn't feel intimidated about asking questions. So many meetings I'd been to, I'd been in the audience and I'd had this burning question, but I just couldn't put my hand up for fear that everyone was going to think I'm completely stupid and ridicule me and that it was, you know, people were, oh, that's completely irrelevant. Um, 
And I wanted to make a space where that didn't happen. Press one to enter the conference. Do you have any idea of where, where the network's going? So I'd really like to be able to form some formal education. When I first started working in histopathology, I had so much time under the microscope to look down the microscope and, and really understand the subtle differences between tissue types and pathologies. And, and that was by my fellow scientists. That was with pathologists. I had so much time to do that. And I feel quite privileged now because it's such a struggle for us to find that time. And what I found was when I was trying to recruit into those more specialised roles in immunohistochemistry that we didn't always have people with the knowledge or expertise that could come in and do the job. So I feel like training and education is a really good direction. I'd really like to be able to host a face-to-face meeting. And I know that the other guys on the network are going to kill me for saying it, but really like to make it free so that nobody has to pay because the most the people that don't have as much money to, to pay out for these things are, are the people that are in training posts or people that need to know or haven't had access mm. to to being able to go on, on training. So I'd like to be able to host a meeting where nobody has to pay and it be face-to-face with an opportunity for networking. And that doesn't mean canapes and glasses. That means maybe <laughs> there's small pockets of people that are having a rant about something or talking about what they enjoy about their role and their immunist chemistry. And then the other um, potential would be some kind of professional body. There isn't one for immunist chemistry in the UK, but that's like a bit of a pipe dream. That's like... <laughs> I didn't know that there wasn't a professional body for that, that group biomedical of the science. So the Institute of Biomedical yeah. Science, of course, and for um, clinical scientists, but specifically for immunist chemistry... No, there isn't. And, you know, maybe it's a stupid idea, but yeah, that's kind of, you know, where it could go in the future. Yeah. We'll see. And then maybe a bit of horizon scanning. So what's coming up? What should we know about now? Things like um, the digital pathology that you, you mentioned one on the web- webinar. Absolutely. Yeah. Artificial intelligence and, you know, the limitations and the challenges, but also the massive advantages or how does it play a part in, in immuno? Yeah. And what will the future be like in the NHS? What test is coming up next? What's What drugs are in clinical trials? What should we be preparing ourselves for in our laboratory or resource management? You know, we don't have an infinite amount of resources but how are we managing to get these business cases written or ask oncology or ask companies to to help fund some of these tests that we're being asked to do again one of the challenges is a you know a new drug approved to find nice so you know via this test who's going to pay for this test this is one of the biggest things we face every day we've got to do another test who's going to pay for it <laughs> and again what i'm trying to say i suppose is everyone's coming up against the same thing so it's good to discuss mm-hmm how other people may have overcome them obviously it takes a lot of time to to collate all this and you've got five of you working on it um it kind of in your own time by the sound of it how can you measure how successful it is and the value of it yeah well i think Mm. we can see from the expanding numbers of members that we have and we find that once we've had a webinar we get quite a lot of interest on the website we can see that people are visiting it what i would like to do Chris is get more content on the website. It would be great if we could um, employ somebody to do that and to help with the forum. I suppose it's difficult to to make the case for the money for someone to help run the network 
if we pay for someone to run the network, it's going to save us this much money in, in a sort of business case kind of way that you might do for other yeah, things. Yeah, so we're always um, looking for companies that may be able to sponsor if um, anybody's interested. Oh, good plug there, Chris. If anyone's interested in, in sponsoring a webinar evening or even that face-to-face meeting um, I was talking about. I suppose as scientists, we like to put numbers on things, but it's very hard to put a number on on the value of people interacting like there's definitely interest yeah. um, but then when it comes down to availability of money or resources knowing which networks to invest in you know how to pick which network to give it to <laughs> give it i suppose it's quite challenging <laughs> i don't know if if just my word alone is good enough to to sell a network for for millions of pounds but um <laughs> you might need to ask some of the members whether or not they think it's useful i think it's important to mention them because because without them, it wouldn't have happened. And I think they deserve that recognition. Okay, I'm a fantastic leader. I'm not going to deny it. Um, but it's... <laughs> <laughs> cut that out. Brilliant. Please cut that out. Um, but it's, it's a team effort. Like, I just like, couldn't do it on your own. Now, what has the experience setting this network up taught you? I've learned a lot about myself and about my... And this is going to sound really... Like, like I've got a massive ego, but I haven't. Well, I don't think I have. Um, about my my capabilities as a leader, if you like, and able to, you know, get something cut from the ground t- to how it is now. You know, I am really proud of that, and I wouldn't change it. I don't. I don't think I would change anything. I would, but no, I think the whole process, although it, it was daunting and scary. And at times, very, very challenging. Had to go through it to learn. Yeah. And do you, what would you say to someone else if they were going to start a network? Yes, yeah, so it's get rid of that imposter syndrome. <laughs> you need to get rid mm-hmm. of it because you know no one else has done it. And if you're going to do it, then you need to congratulate yourself from the off that you've even like thinking about doing it. Take the plunge. You you know you may get a few people that say actually network's not for me which is fine because there's going to be a lot more people out there that are going to say that it is worthwhile doing. Um, just be prepared that it will take up some of your time in a good way because obviously you enjoy doing it, but it it's it's a, it's, it's quite a lot of hard work. Uh, and that I would say try and try and get support and help from other people where and when you can. Um, because like we've discussed, Chris, it's really a team effort and you can't do it all on your own. And then the final thing, uh, I'd like to get your opinion. Uh, so I asked the the latest AI to give me a phrase that's linking healthcare networks with immunohistochemistry. And this is what it gave me. Just as immunohistochemistry can identify molecular changes that signal disease, healthcare networks can identify patterns of health disparities that signal the need for targeted interventions. <laughs> quite good or i think i preferred this one it gave me a couple um just as immunohistochemistry identifies the specific markers within tissues healthcare networks enable the identification of specific needs within communities okay sounds like you preferred the first (laughs) one there final one just as immunohistochemistry uses markers to identify and understand the complex structures of tissues social networks Use connections to reveal the hidden structures of human relationships. Oh, I like that one. We'll go with that one. Yeah, I might have to use that on the website. 
select your antibody. Cytokeratin, PDL1, SOX10, ER2, DGFR3, KI67, CK7, CK20. This was the Healthcare Science Show. Thanks to Keeley for revealing the secrets of immunohistochemistry and sharing her experiences of starting up the Immunohistochemistry Network. Whatever you're doing next, maybe take a moment to think what networks you're part of in your own life and how they've impacted you. And finally, thank you for listening.